0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: I do consider it a great privilege to have the opportunity to share thoughts with you from Shabbat to Shabbat. It's been several decades now I've had this opportunity, and I'm so thankful for it. And over the years, uh, I have, as you probably have as well, you've probably had some... How many have had some theological discussions? Now, I'm not saying arguments. How many have had some theological discussions with friends or family? Let's see here. Most of us have. (laughs) And if you're a believer... Uh, by that, uh, I mean a believer in the Mashiach, in the Messiah, Yeshua. If you're a believer, uh, then you, you probably start out with your baseline thought idea, your premise is the scripture. And I know there are some lovers of God's word here because I know many of you and I know that's, that describes you. But there are some people that contend, and I mean they really contend, that the Bible is not relevant for our lives. They consider it ancient history, ancient literature that was good for the ancients, but less so for us. Now, I've encountered them over the years. I, Frankly, I think, if my experience is any kind of indicator, that the number of people like that seems to be increasing. Now, we often function in believing circles, and we may not notice it. But it seems to be increasing of those that feel like Scripture, the Bible. When I say the Bible, I'm, I reference from from Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, all the way to Revelation. They feel like, well, you know, that was fine. That was written thousands of years ago. What's that have to do with me now? And they say at best something like this, that was good for then, but this is now, and never the twain shall meet. Now, I could not disagree more with that premise, with that type of thinking. In my opinion, over the years, I've found that Scripture has become even more relevant, the truths of Scripture, to our society, even more needed and more necessary. Uh, There's many times that I've seen what's going on in history around us, and there's a lot happening in our day and age. And I've, I've looked at that and I thought, oh, I wish they would just grab what Scripture says about these matters or these, these issues. I wish they would just believe what Scripture says and, and activate and be active in what Scripture says. What a, a better world it would be because Scripture is relevant to us today. It is important for us today today. And you are, you are a wise person if you're spending time in the word of God, learning it, and allowing that word of God to take deeper and deeper roots inside of your heart, you're a wise person. Because those who do that, when the storms of life come, it's similar to Yeshua's parable in Matthew 7, where he talked about a house built on a rock and a house built on sand. And which one is the one that survives? The one that's built on the rock. And in essence, building our lives according to the word of God is like building our lives upon a rock. Because his word is not going to pass away. Now, the headlines of the New York Times are going to change, and I'm sure the New York Times is going to pass away, and and all these other things that are in print, but the Word of God is not going to pass away. Yeshua stated it clearly. He said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he or she is a wise person who spends some time in the Word and learning the Word memorizing the word and getting into the word now those that say the scripture is not relevant for now and I've encountered them and as I've said and it's a a truism for me I've encountered that more than ever nowadays they don't want to hear what scripture has to say They they just don't feel it's relevant Well, those who would consider what Scripture says and start thinking about it more would realize that it would be a much better world if society followed what Scripture said. In cases, for example, wouldn't it be a much better world if everyone lived according to what what Kevin shared with us today during the liturgy, those two great commandments, to love God and love your neighbors? How many agree there would be a much better world we live in? It would be if people did that. Instead, there are those who are actually functioning under the premise of hate God and hate your neighbor. How atrocious is that? And wouldn't it be a much better world if we, for example if we live by what's often called the golden rule that Yeshua stated in the Matadiyah, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where he said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the Torah and the Nevi'im. This is the law and the prophets. Wouldn't it be a better world if we lived like that? In fact, I would suggest that we try more and more to live like that, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, to do unto others those good things that you'd want them to do for you. Or should we relegate should we relegate to the dustbin of human experience the ultra wise sayings of proverbs Have any of you been reading in proverbs lately I have <laughs> I would say that I find the book of proverbs to be as relevant as ever to life But if we relegate to the dustbin of human experience the ultra wise sayings and teachings that are in Proverbs, what's what what happens? Well, we would be losing things like this, like what we read in Proverbs chapter twenty-four, beginning with verse thirty-three, where it teaches us to be diligent. It says, "A little sleep, a little slumber, (laughs) a little folding of the hands to rest." It's not talking about what we should be doing now in this service. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And verse 34 says, So shall your poverty come like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. I like that proverb, don't you? (laughs) That Proverbs, if they throw that in the dustbin of human experience and take it out of the actual way we should be thinking and, and conducting ourselves, we're losing something. Or what about Proverbs chapter 3? If this is just thrown away, this important spiritual principle, Proverbs chapter 3, all of Proverbs chapter 3, but verse 9, which teach us to honor God first and foremost in our life. And that includes with our material things. Listen to what it says. Honor the Lord with your possessions, Proverbs 3, verse 9. And with the first fruits, not the second fruits, not the last fruits, and not the leftover fruits. With the very first fruits of all your increase. And guess what it promises in verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty And your vats will overflow with new wine. And someone said, Well, see, that doesn't apply because I don't have a barn. Well, let's do a little bit of uh, application of principle here because scripture is full of truths and principles that are relevant to how we live our life and we are better off as a people, as an individual, as a family, and as a society when we don't throw scripture out. In fact, when we embrace scripture more, we're better. Or what about Proverbs 21 verse 30? (laughs) It seems to sum up the, the gist of the book of Proverbs, and, and some even say perhaps all of Scripture is summed up in Proverbs 21, verse 30. The Hebrew of this verse is surprisingly simple, yet the implication is quite profound of what this verse says. Ein hochma, tevunah, the le'neged Adonai. There is no wisdom, no understanding, or no counsel against the Lord. (laughs) That's a good starting point in life, isn't it? If you set yourself up against the Lord in your life, it's a failing premise. Isn't it better to walk with the Lord, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, to not lean on your own understanding, to to really look to him because there's no wisdom you're going to come up with that's greater than his? There's no understanding greater than the understanding he will give to you, and there's really no counsel against him. After all, he's the Peleoets, he's the wonderful counselor, as Isaiah describes him. Some would also say that modern society has become too smart for its own good. <laughs> It's out there. I know as we as we go through our searching the internet and we do all the stuff we do with the web and what a name that is for that the web. As we go through the and search out the web, and we read all the new newfangled science things that comes and I'm not against science. I Actually, appreciate science, and we realize that oftentimes what we knew. 20 years ago has been changed and updated and now it's a different thing now so if you camped out on what you heard 20 years ago as being the proofs of science and uh, factual things and you find out a little bit later well that's not exactly what it was and I mentioned several weeks ago one in my life was the great freeze that was going to come when I was a kid the ice age that was going to consume us now we're going to be burned up You know what? Isn't it better to walk with God, follow his way, and let the chips fall where they will because he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hot or cold won't matter to him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some of the things, some of the messages that are circulating in society right now, they seem like they're more from the dark side. From the dark side rather than the Lord's kingdom of life. They're more from the dark side than from the kingdom of light. And Yeshua is what? He's Or Haulam. He's the light of the world. And if we walk in his light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Yeshua cleanses us from all unrighteousness. My main goal today is to share with you five false messages five false messages that I've noticed that are currently trending in modern society. Now, I'm going to try to, to whittle them down to, to uh, express them in simple statements, but there, there are offshoots of these five messages. You'll recognize them. Here's false message number one. I've heard this recently more than I care to hear this one. I've heard it recently in an interview on television... It was very disappointing, but the person being interviewed said this, and it's my way of saying it also. This is false message number one. Each person has his or her own truth. Oh, really? <laughs> well, there's uh, if, we, if, if you throw out Scripture, you might come up with that, but if you look at Scripture, you have a little bit of a Explaining to do. As we state here, and I think accurately, each Shabbat, one of Yeshua's great statements in Yochanan, John chapter 14, verse 6, was that He is the way, the truth, the life. So if each person has his or her own truth, I hope that each person is, is receiving Yeshua as their truth. And his word as their truth and living their life according to Yeshua, what he says. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And as was said here this morning during the liturgy, no one comes to the Father except through him. So unless our truth is really expressed in our relationship with Yeshua and we look to him who is the way, the truth, and the life, we may be copping into or going into some of the very wrong message that's out there about each person has his or her own truth. Now, the new covenant teaches, and it's very clear, the Brit Shah, it teaches that truth is not a subjective issue. In other words, truth is a divine matter. I mean, think about it. Yeshua is the truth. It's you know, Yeshua deities related to truth. And God's word is truth, it says. And he is true. And truth is, in fact, a divinely established matter. It's not subject to our facile and futile debates. Truth is truth. Several decades ago, the late Dr. Francis Shaver used a way to express truth that, that has always stuck with me. I've mentioned it several times over the years here. But he talked about, he, he, was, he was in La and I believe it was in Switzerland. And he was in Labrie, he was working there leading people, he led many Jewish people to the Lord from my understanding, I even know one that he led to the Lord, it's in the Messianic movement. But he realized when he was interacting with these hippies as they were going through the hippie trail and going through Europe back in the 60s and 70s, he realized that the idea of truth was being played with. And being altered. And these young people were coming through on the hippie trail. And they had this whole different idea about truth. And so he came up with this idea. And he used this term that's really stuck with me. He called it true truth. To emphasize, yeah, I mean, maybe the proofs of science seem true sometimes. And maybe they will be. But when we talk about God's truth, it's true truth. It withstands. It stands forever. His truth endures forever, as scripture says. And so he talked about true truths. But John chapter 1 verse 17 clearly states this. Grace and truth came through who? Messiah Yeshua. So a, so if a person says they have his or her own truth. If they, his or her own truth doesn't involve Yeshua, they're a little bit off somewhere because the last that I understood, he's sitting on the throne. (laughs) He is high and lifted up, and he's coming back again, and we'll see whose truth is true truth. The truth that the society pushes that are contrary to the word of God, or the truth that we see embodied in Yeshua, the Messiah. There is the true truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says that the truth is in Yeshua. So ponder that as a message that's out there that each person has his or her own truth and make sure if you hear that message that you follow through a little more and say, what, are they, what do they mean when they say that? Is Yeshua the center of their truth, their personal truth? And let me share another one. A false societal message, number two here this morning. Very common in the Jewish community. False message number two. Humanity can repair the world. <laughs> we call it in Hebrew, tikkun olam. It's more commonly heard in, among American Jews than anywhere, probably. Tikkun olam. We can repair the world. <laughs> and this sounds so alluring. How many of you want to see as a human being? You want to see the world repaired. You want to see people get right. You want to see the end of suffering, all that I do. But can humanity repair the world? <laughs> this sounds alluring. Yes, the idea, the concept sounds alluring. And I certainly think Scripture teaches us to do good and to do well. As I say that, I'm reminded of what John Wesley once said, one of his most famous quotes. Some of you have probably heard this. He said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. (laughs) I'm tired out just saying that. But even the psalmist, the psalmist realized that the best efforts of humanity Avail not without the blessing of the Lord. You know passages like Tehillim Psalm one twenty seven verse one says, "Unless the Lord builds a house, guess what? They labor in vain who build it." And let's not forget what First Yochanan First John chapter two verse seventeen says. <laughs> it tells us clearly the world is passing away and the lust of it. And I hope you catch this next phrase here because it's critical to every one of us here today. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God does what? Abides forever. Are you setting your focus on doing the will of God in your life? Is that really your principle of truth? Is that what you're walking in? Is that the message you're carrying forth through your life? Doing the will of God. We may have sincere intentions, but ultimately, only the Lord can repair the world. <laughs> you know why I say that? I think only the Lord can repair the world. I say that because only he can change the hearts of man. We can make the outward look nice. Our society is rich in that way. can make the outward look good, but it's God who changes the heart of man. It's the Lord who can really alter our course in life. And I pray that's your testimony that he got hold of you somewhere historically in your life. At some historical point, he grabbed hold of your heart. And he, I like the word, he apprehended your heart. And you have never looked back. You're following him now. You want to do his will because he who does the will of God abides forever. And it's God who is at work, that great master potter, Molding you like your clay and molding you to do his purposes. Humanity can't do that. Human effort can't go into the heart other than through surgery, but change the motives and intentions of the heart. And God sees all this and he knows all what's going on in our hearts. Nothing's hidden from him. Our hearts are laid bare, as the book of Messianic Jews says, the book of Hebrews says. We are bare, we're naked before he sees everything about us. It is futile, futile to try to hide or run from him. Read Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence, O Lord? Where can I go? Wherever I go, behold, you're there. You know my deepest thoughts, the psalmist said. My thoughts are not hidden from you, the psalmist said. Only God can change the heart. Well, I like the idea of doing good. How many like that? We need to do mitzvot. We need to do what's right in the sight of God. We need to do his will. But when it comes to societal repair, <laughs> that's for the Lord. Only the Lord could do that. Humanity cannot repair the world. But we need to do as much good as we can while we have breath. And here's a third message, a third of five messages that I hear that's commonly, and this one is right in the center of the five. That third message that's commonly stated, and I've heard it many times in many variations of it, is that all roads lead to the same place. There's some extreme forms of that idea. I've encountered her one time discussing this with someone. It was in the state of Texas, actually. I encountered this, the extreme case of this. But in that framework that all roads lead to the same place, some think God, if he exists, by the way, they think God, if he exists, and if he is really merciful and good as people say he is, that God will not punish evildoers because he's good and he's merciful and he would never punish evildoers. Because he's love. God is love. Rather, they see that he will just let it all slip by, you know? He just, grace. He'll let it all slip by. Ultimately, yeah, maybe a slap on the wrist, but ultimately the, the, the same destination, the same destiny, the same fate, however you want to express it, will be the same for both the wicked and the good. There's an extreme form of this, and I was really knocked off my rocker in discussing this with a the, with the man in Texas. There's an extreme form of this. It's called ultimate reconciliation. Ultimate reconciliation in extreme says not only that all people will have the same fate, whether they're good or bad, because God is good, and he's just going to you know, uh, let it all slip by. But there's an extreme form that says not only is God going to let everything slip by, the evil and the good are going to have the same fate at the end because God's mercy. There's an extreme case that says that God and Satan are going to reconcile. Yeah, that's what I did when this gentleman tried to tell me that. He was thoroughly convinced that there would be reconciliation with God and Satan. In the end, in the end of all things, that they're gonna, they're gonna call it a draw, shake hands, and walk into the sunset together, just like Hollywood would have it. Can I say this on Shabbat in a Messianic Jewish congregation? Hogwash. <laughs> <laughs> Why would there be passages like this warning us over and over again? Passages like this in Romans chapter 2, written by Rav Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who knew the Torah, who was, who was uh, raised up by Gamaliel, Gamaliel. Why would he write this? If there's ultimate reconciliation, then what's the use of it all anyway? You Might as well do evil because ultimately God's just going to let you pass by. You're okay, I'm okay. Get in there. But that's not what scripture teaches at all. Please don't buy into that message that they're all roads lead to the same place because they don't. Romans chapter two, verse four says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to, say that word with me, repentance. If it's all going to end up in the same place, why should there even be repentance? Not knowing that the goodness of God, it's meant to lead you to repentance, to change your ways, to have a metanoia experience, a teshuvah experience, and go the other direction. But he continues, Rapshul Paul, the apostle, continues and says, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitentness. Heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Well, I mean, if there's ultimate reconciliation, well, wrath is out of the picture. Day of judgment's out of the picture. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds... Verse 7, chayolam, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. Will you say that phrase with me, please? Patient continuance in doing good. Let's try it again. Patient continuance in doing good. I don't know if that ministers to you, but it certainly does to me that sometimes when it comes in the realm of doing good, it takes some patient continuances. to to do it. Who will render to each one according to his eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And then verse 8, there's that big word, B-U-T. But to those who are what? Self-seeking. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek verse 11 say it with me please for there is no partiality with God now I don't know what you get out of that but what I get out of that is we need to go about doing good just like Yeshua did He went about doing good and healing all those who are pressed to the evil one. He's describing the book of Acts. There's not all roads lead to the same place. We need to make sure that we're walking in a straight and narrow way. Because the way of destruction is wide and many there are that go down that way. Are your feet going down that way? If they are, make sure you get off that path. And through, what's that phrase? Patient, continuance, and doing good. Go that, that direction. A message that all roads lead to the same destiny, in my opinion, is far from the truth of God. It's far from it. Now, let's explore this a little more. Sure, God is love. That's the shortest description that I know of of him. In First John, it describes as God is love. Three words. Yet scripture doesn't only attest to that part of who God is. That part of his nature, character, description of him. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, that says this. Ki adonai Shoftenu, it says. For the Lord is Shoftenu, he's our judge. It says Adonai Mehokekenu, he is our lawgiver. Adonai Malkenu; he is our king. And then it says this, it's a statement about him. It says, Yoshi Yoshienu. He will save us. And that word or that phrase, who, Yoshienu, especially the word Yoshienu, connects directly to the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. In Matthew Matthew 1, verse 22, it says, Miriam, or Mary as she's commonly called, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Hebrew is a little better here. You shall call his name Yeshua. For what? For he will Yoshia. He will Yoshia. It's Yeshua who Yoshia's. <laughs> he will Yoshia. He will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Yeshua, which means delivered salvation. Because he will be the one who, Yoshia, the verb, he will be the one who saves, delivers his people from their sins. And in the Bible, it's clear that only God can save. He alone is the Savior. In Isaiah, it says, there is no other Savior besides me. Now, there's much more to say about that third one. I wanted to speak a little more about that, but let's press on to number four, a fourth message that we hear increasingly it's actually a very disturbing message to me. It may be to you too. It's this fourth message that's out in our society. Is this idea, this, uh, this thought that life is not worth living. Some futility connected to that. It's futile. Now I'm convinced this attitude, and of course, this is more of a personal convi- uh, conviction. But I'm convinced that this attitude has increased the number of aborted babies in the world, for example. Because the reason being, if the parents think life is not worth living, then why bring a child into this world? And in some cases, the the reasoning goes even farther. Since life is not worth living, why not then live for ourselves now? (laughs) You know the philosophy that's found, one of many found in the book of Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes, that says, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. So if life is not worth living, why not just live for ourselves, for self-indulgence? Indulge all we can and let's please ourselves, all we can. Let's experience all the pleasure we can now while we're still we're still breathing. And when you add this idea that life is not worth living then you add that to the to the idea that you know everybody has their own truth and then you add that to the idea that that god is not really there that's very lethal thinking so if life's not worth living why not why just why can't we just live and do all we want to please ourselves let's fulfill all our own selfish desires let's live for ourselves After all, since life is not worth living, as some say, some propose in this fourth message we're talking about, suggests life's not worth living, so I might as well live it out, live out this misery to the hilt with self-indulgence. Frankly, those with this attitude don't realize that they are actually serving a God. And let me spell that God's name S E L F, self. Self will, self satisfaction, selfish pleasures, and so forth, they become their, the main motivators behind their daily thoughts and actions and their words. It's all about them, it's all about self. After all, in the extreme form of this life's not worth living, so hey, I'm alive now. I might as well live it to the hilt, this misery that I call life, and live it to the hilt with all the pleasure I can get. That is a bottomless pit of emptiness. Self is the God, the God. They seek to appease and please and to this type of mentality and it's out there and some of you have probably encountered it maybe you've even come from that kind of a mentality maybe you even struggle sometimes thinking like that well what's life all about anyway I might as well just fulfill my own self satisfaction here then this idea which is very scriptural and very central to the teaching of Yeshua This idea of denying oneself is anathema to the person that feels like life is not worth living. And because life's not worth living, I might as well just live for my selfish needs and greeds. Scripture speaks as much against this idea of living for self as any other thing that I could find. Yeshua addressed it directly many times, many times in many ways and if truth be told here today, Yeshua, in Yeshua is hidden the life of all humanity. As Colossians chapter 3 states it in verse 1. says, if then you were raised with Messiah, what does it say? It doesn't say seek all the selfish things you can find. No. If you were raised with Messiah, seek those things which are above those heavenly things. Where Messiah is, Sitting at the right hand of God. And verse 2 says, set your mind. That place where you do the thinking at. (laughs) Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And here's the kicker. (laughs) For you died. You died. And guess what? Your life is hidden with Messiah and God. God. When Messiah, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I was noticing as I read that passage privately that there are five references to Messiah in that passage. Four mention Messiah directly or Christ directly. One just says him. And I thought, aren't there five senses? I know now they've expanded to nine or how many. But the five basic senses, it means like our whole being should be about Messiah. Now, the apostle said of Yeshua in John chapter 1, verse 3, says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life. Verse 4 of Yochanan, John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In who is life? Messiah. That's why we have that up in the back there. In him is life, that banner. In Paul's characterization, how he characterizes the last days is curious. And we just studied Paul's eschatology on this past Tuesday night. You should note that the first two things he lists in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, these are the first two things he lists. He says, for men will be What? lovers of themselves and lovers of money first two things he lists i mean think about it he was a uh, how would you say an avid writer he was a very prolific writer wrote at least 13 epistles letters that we find in the brit halshan the new covenant when he came to talk about the last days the first two things he lists is that men will be what lovers of themselves And then his thinking goes to the very next thing. Not only lovers of himself, lovers of money. Lovers of money. And Yeshua's statement that we find in Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 24, goes like this. Then Yeshua said to his Talmudim, his disciples, this is a hard word for this generation. If anyone, how many people? Anyone. If anyone desires to come after me, Yeshua said, what's the first thing he says? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a tripartite statement. Deny himself, part one. Take up his cross, part two. Follow him, part three. It's a tripartite statement. And then it says this. Again, Matthew 16, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. (laughs) But whoever loses his life, Yeshua said, for his sake, for my sake, he said, guess what? You will find it. Our life is hidden in Messiah. Do you know your real life is hidden in service to Messiah? That's where you'll blossom. That's where you'll sprout. That's where the, all the giftings that he places, that's where it's going to come out as you serve Messiah. And please don't despise the little things of service that happen in the community. Those are the proving ground. Those are the proving ground for, it, for us. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, Yeshua said. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And there, verse 26, one of his most piercing questions. He says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? That's a lot of gain, isn't it? He gains the whole world. What profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? He, asks, he says it in another way, a question right afterwards. He says it the same thing in a different direction. He says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he warns, and I think there's warning in this. You would be the judge yourself on this. He says, for the Son of Man will come. It doesn't say might come. It's possible he may come. No, he says the Son of Man will come in the glory of his father, with his malachim, with his angels. And guess what? (laughs) And then he will reward each according to his works. Do you think the deeds you do are important? They are very important. Your generosity, you think that's important. It's very important. Your kindness extended to others, very important. Your self-denial at times, very important. At times you want to lash out at someone and you decide not to because of him, that's significant. All those denials, all those times you deny yourself because of him is significant. Do you think those go unnoticed by Hashem, by the Lord? I think he sees it all. Now I want to conclude with the fifth final message that I've heard it propagated many times and in many ways. It goes back decades. It goes back back to the time of the apostles. This message has sub-messages and has offshoots from this main message. And the main message is it's not new at all. But I can say, and maybe my experience is different than yours, I don't know, but I can say that this message is out there. It's a scary message to me. The message is, there is no God. And if this message is bought into by individuals or family or a married couple or a society, it's curtains. <laughs> you know what happens. I mean, all of Psalm 14 addresses this ideology that there is no God. Here are several verses, Psalm 14, beginning with verse 1. (laughs) Notice how it starts. The fool, the fool has said where? In his heart. The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. You think there are a lot of foolish people out there right now? I've encountered them. They almost think you're a bit mishuganah, a bit crazy because you believe in God, because you have a reverence for God, because you want to serve God, because you want to do what's right in God's sight, because you want to do his will. They, They think, what's the matter with you? There's no God. Why are you wasting your time? I think the psalmist is right, and I hope you do too. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then the very next statement, they are corrupt. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. And he looks down. He says, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The desire of those who deny God, that there is a God, hidden desire a sub sub idea here is they they want to cast off all authority and all restraint because god is what he's representative of authority in fact he's more than representative of authority he is the authority and there's this idea well if i just say there's no god and try to live like there's no god then maybe there is no god the truth is there is god and he is the he's the great judge Psalm 2 verse 3 seems to address this, those that want to cast off restraint. Psalm 2 verse 3 says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And even today, this very day, there are anarchists who want to cast off all restraint, to be free from everything. They don't want... To prosecute the people that think like them, they want to prosecute everyone else. They want to sow seeds of chaos and lawlessness and discord. They delight in that. And sometimes that just emanates from this idea, there's no God, so I can do what I want, and I don't want any restraint on me. God's response in Psalm 2, verse 4, to me is quite memorable. I remember when I first read this 50 years ago. You know what I did? I'll tell you what I did in a minute. It says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. That's exactly what I did the first time I read this. The picture of God, it's a laugh of derision. Of God who does What do they think they're doing? They think they're greater than me. They think they can cast me away. They think they can get rid of me. Where can they go from my presence? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Lawlessness, casting off restraints, including both spiritual and moral restraints. And there's a lot happening in that realm. Casting off moral restraints because just because society says it's good, Society is not the final arbiter of what's good. The Lord is. These type of things, casting off moral restraints and spiritual restraints, will and are and may greatly hurt us as a society. Now, as I briefly consider these five messages I've encountered, and I would suspect that you've encountered similar messages or derivations of these messages I want to come to one conclusion here today, and it's a happy conclusion. (laughs) It's a thankful conclusion. I am thankful before you today, exceedingly thankful. I am thankful for the message of the gospel. I am thankful for the good news of God's love for us, that he loved you so much that he sent his son, Yeshua the Messiah, to die for your sins. For his blood to be, as it were, a kippur, a kapara, an atonement for our sins. I'm thankful for that message. I'm thankful for a Messiah who laid down his life for us and and the grave couldn't hold him and he, he rose from the dead. And I'm thankful for a Messiah who's coming back again in great power and glory. We'll see whose message is right. Because believers in Yeshua, if that describes you today, you are a committed believer in Messiah Yeshua, you are in an enviable position. Why? Why do I say that you're in an enviable position? Why? Because you know Messiah lives. Because you know he is Lord over all the earth. Because you know his word abides forever. And you know he is coming soon and he's coming back. That's an enviable position when we consider the five messages, the aberrant messages that I've already discussed here today. How good the gospel is, how the Bessorah, the good news of Messiah, in comparison to these other things. And I leave you with this text as we prepare for the Lord's Supper here today. Some have called this the epilogue of the book of Revelation. Some have even extrapolated that idea as the epilogue of all the Bible. This passage in Revelation, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, beginning with verse 12. Behold, look, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person According to what they have done. The greatest deed is to believe in him. There's the starting point. Is that you today? Have you placed your faith in Messiah? Issue in Jesus the Messiah. There is the, start, the starting stone right there. The starting step. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now, many people would like to stop right there. That's a happy ending. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And then the next statement is outside. Outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts. The sexually immoral. The murderers. The idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. To me, that doesn't look like ultimate reconciliation that looks like a judge and it's important what we do with our lives now
0: you've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma we would love to have you visit us our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place North of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpina.org. That's R O S H P I N A H dot O R G. You can also reach us by phone at four zero five. or email us at info at roshpinah.org Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.